You're listening to the Anomalous Podcast Network. Multiple voices, one phenomenon. Hello everyone, how's it going? And welcome back to Disclosure Team's YouTube channel. Uh, good to see everybody here in the live chat. I really appreciate you all being here. I'm really excited for this one. I've been preparing for this one for a little bit, for a little while. And the case that we're going to be discussing mainly tonight is just absolutely fascinating. And I don't believe it gets talked about enough whatsoever. Um, just going to give a shout out to all the people that have become members on the channel. I really appreciate all of you. Um, it just really does help the channel. So, you know, if you're considering it, check it out. If you want to support the channel, there's some links below. But, you know, I don't really shout that stuff around. But, you know, I just wanted everyone to know that any support is really appreciated. So uh, let's jump straight into we've got um, Dr. David Clark here with us tonight. We're going to hear all about this case. We've got some never before heard audio clips of interviews with RAF servicemen who were involved with the case. I've been going through and editing them out. Editing, editing out clips from these uh, interviews for anybody that does want to listen to the full interviews because one of them is like an hour and f 45 minutes link below in the description to my google drive you can download them check them out for yourselves um, i highly recommend it because it's amazing uh, so let's not waste any more time um, i'd like to please uh, put your hands together for dr david clark david how you doing good great to see everybody again or oh, great to see you Vinny. Yes, you're becoming quite the nice regular now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I think last time or we spoke a while back and I said to you, what are the, the kind of cases that you think really do hold a lot of weight that probably don't really get talked about here in the UK? And this one, the sort of Bentwaters Lake and Heath was probably the first one that you mentioned. So I had to have you on to talk about it. And then when we found out or I found out that you'd done these interviews with the kind of people that were there and involved in it you know I knew it, it had to be talked about so I'll kind of hand it over to you and if you could just sort of go through the story and, and tell us about it because like I said it is absolutely fascinating and then when you feel like I should play any clips or show any images and stuff just let me know and we'll, and we'll go from there. Okay thanks Vinny. Um, <clears throat> just to introduce this, um, this story or case um, before Rendlesham came along um, this is a long, long time ago now. Um, this case, the, what was known as the Lake and Heath Bentwaters case, which happened in the same area of East Anglia um, as the Rendlesham Forest incident, it was probably the best known or the best, most evidential um, UFO incident in the um, in the British sort of case list. <clears throat> and um, it happened in 1956 at the height of the Cold War. Um, but the thing is, it was it was effectively covered by Official Secrets Act. Uh, until the late 1960s. So no one actually knew. It wasn't in the public domain until the end of the 1960s, which is when, if uh, so you, you'll know that the American um, Project Blue Book, uh, the US Air Force um, were running, they, they basically closed shop and they gave a contract to the University of Colorado uh, to write a report. This became the infamous Condon Report, not Condine, Condon. 
Um, and um, they examined something like 12,000 um, separate UFO incidents reported to the US Air Force. And some of them were foreign, uh, where, where, for example, um, there were US air bases in, in Europe and Far East. And the interesting thing is, out of those 12,000 cases, um, I think there was something like 700 that remained unexplained. And one of those was from Britain, and that was the Lake and Heath Bentwaters case. And no one in this country in ufology knew anything about this story until the Americans published it in 1969. And, and unfortunately, uh, the, if you believe what the British government tell us, um, their files on it, by that point, the late 1960s, had been destroyed. So when this came out, all the, all the MOD was saying the usual sort of thing, sorry, we can't tell you anything about it because we've destroyed our file on the kids. So um, as I say, it, was, it's, it is usually evidential. There was a lot of information in the American um, files because um, it was the American Air Force um, bases at Bentwaters and Lakenheath in East Anglia where um, these objects, the UFOs, UAPs, whatever you want to call them, were picked up first on radar. Now, they alerted the Royal Air Force because they're sort of guests in the UK at that time. Right at the height of the Cold War, it was just as the Suez crisis was was brewing in the in the um, in the Middle East. Um, there was huge tensions with the Soviet Union, which is there are some connections with what's going on today. I mean, people thought at that time we were literally on the verge of the Third World War. Um, there was there was RAF um, aircraft that were poised on quick reaction alerts base, bases all around the East Coast. Um, they were in contact with radar stations. Anything that was approaching the UK across the North Sea um, that was connect, that was um, seen on radar, there would be an immediate scramble. An aircraft would be sent off across the North Sea to investigate. And the Russians were probing our defences probably two, three times every week. So put ufos or uaps into that mix uh, and you've got a real you've got the basis for an incredible story and on the top of that i mean when i looked into the background to this raf lakenheath which is still tenanted by the us air force today was a base for nuclear weapons and again something that was covered up for many many years just before this ufo incident in june or july 1956 there was a i think it was a b56 bomber coming in to land at Lakenheath, went out of control, crashed into the nuclear weapons stall, and very nearly triggered off a massive nuclear incident in East Anglia that would have you know, covered East Anglia in, in fallout. Narrowly avoided, the detonator didn't go off. And again, this didn't emerge until something like 1980, and as American general mentioned it, and it came out in Parliament. Um, at the same time as well, just before the UFO incident, the uh, the CIA were flying the what was then the brand new black project U-2 spy plane from Lakenheath. Uh, and, it, and they had a contingent of these U-2 spy planes that were, that were being sent over the Soviet Union with the consent of our prime minister at the time, Harold Macmillan. And the the um, the U2s were shipped into the UK in big wooden boxes disguised as bananas, big banana boxes. <laughs> and uh, apparently, when some of the other politicians found out about it, they had to get rid of them, moved them off to um, Weisbaden in West Germany. But you can see, if you were an American officer or you were in the RAF, 
and you were based in that area, you knew all this stuff was going on. You can imagine the tension there must have been. And then one night, August, the night of August the 13th, 14th, 1956, this is a really hot, steamy summer night, clear skies. Um, calls start coming in to the RAF from the various air bases around the East Coast. RAF Bent Waters, um, RAF Lake and Heath, all of them picking up weird objects on their ground control approach radars. So this is where it gets complicated because the American bases had radar, but these were just airfield radars. So they had a small radius. They didn't sort of see very far. Um, and they were seeing odd things on the radar and people were going outside and they were seeing lights in the sky that were streaming across the sky, moving at incredible speeds. Something, I think the, the, some of the things that have been seen on radar were moving at some incredible speed. 4,000 miles per hour was one of the yeah. things that were registered. Formations of objects as well that were sort of slowly moving and then others that were moving really fast. And they were phoning this into the RAF. Um, that's the stage at which the RAF start to, to look on their radars. Now, the RAF radar, and you can see a picture of something like what was being used at the time. This is a, a Type um, 85 centimetric, centimetric radar, which is um, still on site. If you go to RAF Neetisad, which is a radar museum in the Norfolk Broads, they've still got the radar from that era. Uh, you can go and look at it. So this, this is like one of the control cabins they were using, and a... Um, an RAF um, uh, officer called Freddie Wimbledon, who I, I got to know really well. I uh, was in ma lengthy communication with him about 20 years ago when he was in his late 80s, early 90s. He was the chief controller at RAF Neetisad. So he started taking the calls from Bentwaters early in the evening and Lakenheath quite, uh, later on around midnight. And he was quite skeptical, as you can imagine, um, and he looked on his radar picture and could not believe what he could see because he could see something that had apparently come across the North Sea that was that was moving in a, unlike any aircraft moving at fantastic speeds. This was at quite a high altitude because the only way I can describe it, if you can imagine a radar doing this from a source, so you've got the ground control radars that are sort of spinning around like that and maybe seeing something. And they're putting out pulses at a certain speed. Now, the, the, the radar that Freddie Wimbledon had access to, really high-powered ground control interception radar, so much more powerful, spanning out right across the North Sea. So he could see this thing zooming in, moving at incredible speed, stopping, stationary, unlike any aircraft movement. And he thought, is it the Russians? You know, if it is the Russians, it's too late to do anything about it because they're already here <laughs> yeah. over Lakenheath, nuclear-armed airbase, uh, where this, where the U-2 spy plane was. Um, so basically, um, perhaps we ought to um, play some of the tape of Freddie um, talking about this. It's about five or six minutes. I think this one's seven minutes. Seven um, minutes. Yeah, and for everyone that's watching live, if you could, it, it, the quality isn't great, so I've upped it, I've upped the gain and stuff when I was editing it, but if you could just let me know in the chat if you can hear it at least, because I know it's not going to be easy. So, um, yeah, let's let's play it. I should just say I, I, I made these recordings 22 years ago before we had digital technology, so they were made on C90 cassettes and they've been transferred to MP3. 
Yeah, let's go for it. Let's see if people can hear it. Uh, on the night of the 13th, 14th August, 1956, I was a flight lieutenant on duty and chief interception controller at a radar station in East Anglia. My function was to watch the radar picture as seen on our consoles and if any, anything abnormal was seen, to take what action was necessary. This involved scrambling fighter aircraft which were on standby 24 hours a day. Right. Um, not long after I went on duty at um, 
was behaving rather erratically. So we had two choices there. Either this, whatever it was, um, had been able to loop and get behind uh, the target aircraft, or target rather, or the, it had undershot uh, the target, which later appeared to be the correct version. So I decided then to scramble another aircraft, and that was scrambled to join the chase. In the meantime, the target had shot up at a tremendous pace in the northeasterly direction, but at such a rate that our height, it was off our height um, console before he could say Jack Robinson at terrific speed. Oh, I don't say shaken by this, but um, the experience was such that we'd never, something that we'd never encountered before. And the sheer speed, not only speed, but maneuverability of this object, whatever it was, um, seemed so un uncanny. The next day, we were visited by a group captain from Haida Command who wanted to tell the story. And uh, he told us, under no circumstances, were we to talk about it amongst our fellows or anybody else. And never let the press or anything know. And um, it seemed very strange at the time. But he said, don't worry, you haven't seen something. These things are. They described as a, a bright light. Mm. They couldn't see anything else but a bright light. But you've got the measure so, of it there. When you were tracking this thing on the, on the radar, yeah. what, what could A normal radar, um, aircraft response. Right. No bigger than any other one thought no Just exactly the same as one of our own would have been. Right. But presumably behaving in a way that... But behaving in a way that no aircraft at that time, or anything in business, mm. uh, would be able to do. I mean, no aircraft can be doing two or three thousand miles an hour and stop like that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, oh. <laughs> I mean, Freddie was, I think he was in his late eighties when I interviewed him and that would have been about 2000, 2001. And I should say the reason why um, we knew he, he'd come forward and he was willing to talk about it was in 1978, I think it was shortly after Steven Spielberg's film had been released. Um, uh, Close Encounters. Yeah, a skeptic called Ian Ridpath, who I know quite well, he wrote a piece for, I think it was the Sunday Times, um, based upon what had been in the Condi Condon report about the case. And it, and because it, it was only the American version, it was all completely wrong and mixed up. And this was in yeah. the Sunday Times, and Freddie read it, and he wrote into the Sunday Times and said, what a load of nonsense that 
I was there. Why has no one asked me about this? And that's how it came out that he was involved in this. So managed to track him down and get him speaking. He spoke to various other ufologists as well. <clears throat> but as you can see, a, a quite an incredible story. And the story that he told is pretty much um, it's it's um, it, it's it's pretty much the same story that's in the Blue Book records. But there's a lot of inconsistencies, which I don't think we need to sort of go into at the moment. It's it's sort of like sure. Um, it's it's about the timings because the American timings um, seem to be earlier in the evening, and he's talking about something that happened after midnight. But yeah. there's a lot there's a lot of things that could explain that because at the time we were subject to what what was known as British double British summertime. So our time was two hours ahead of the American time. So th there's lots of sort of distortions going on like that. But he was obviously, he ordered the interceptors. And and it wasn't until I think the late 1990s that we actually tracked down the pilots and the navigators who were flying the Venoms, the NF4, NF-10 Venoms. And they were like, as Freddie had ex explained in that clip, they were like a double-seater um, interceptor aircraft that had forward-facing interception radars. So he sc he scrambled them from the battle flight. So, that, so there was a group of Venoms that were on 24-hour 24, 24 uh, call at a, a base called RAF Water Beach, which is near Cambridge, Cambridge, city of Cambridge. And there was a whole group of people. So this is where you get all these other names like Graham Schofield, uh, John Brady, Ivan Logan, they were all sat around in this, you know, you can imagine the Battle of Britain. Yeah. Similar sort of thing, but Cold War. They were waiting for the call. They were expecting the Russians to come. And they thought the Russians would be coming over the uh, over the um, the North Sea at very high altitude, you know, the Russian bears. So when they got this call from um, from uh, the RAF, Neeti said, um, it, they were absolutely amazed because they were being asked to go and intercept something that was at 4,000 feet above the East Anglian countryside. So if it was the Russians, <laughs> it's far too late to do anything about it. So perhaps we ought to now play the, the, the description from John Brady, who was the navigator in the first Venom. He, he was sent by um, Freddie Wimbledon to intercept um, this UFO that was on the RAF Neatest said radar, and he was told to speak to the Americans. So they switched frequency to RAF Lakeneath, so that the Americans were using the ground-controlled approach radar because the object was so near the ground, they couldn't see it on the interception radar. It had dropped below the horizon that, that Freddie could see. So they put patched them through to the Americans, and perhaps we ought to let John tell the story. What happened next? Absolutely. Um, I'll just premise this by saying that these are clips from forty-five minute interviews: the the Freddie Wimbledon that we heard, and this one from John Brady. They are in the description below if you want to hear the extended interviews, and I highly, highly recommend it. But let's go ahead and play this one. This is John Brady. Here we go. Oops. Sorry, I need to. Help if I shared my screen, wouldn't it? Here we go. On the night in question, I can remember some chat immediately prior to scramble with Neatest Head, and they then they called for a venom, and um, I think it probably went like Water Beach, Water Beach here, one venom, scramble, vector so and so, call so and so on, whatever, whatever frequency it was. Well, we were airborne probably within two minutes because the uh, Venom was a cartridge start um, startup system. The pilot just pressed the cartridge 
happening with this terrific whoosh from the cartridge gases as it drove the turbine around the starting mechanism around. Um, there's no warning up in the jet, we just roared off. And we were thinking, what the dickens is this? <laughs> but we had a vague idea that the Americans wanted us to go and look at something. But where did that idea come from? Well, it must have come from Nietzsche's probably the chap saying the Americans want us to want you to go and look at something they've got. I can't remember very clearly on that. Anyhow, off we went and called Lake Peace, and they were directing us uh, towards this thing at around 7,000 feet. The first run we had at it, I saw nothing. The next time we went, went beyond, um, I, I can remember saying to David, contact, and he kept saying, what is it? I can't see it, as we rushed by on each pass. And it would go down the right-hand side or left-hand side, depending which way we went at it. And there would be a little paint like that. And it was fairly obvious that whatever it was, was stationary. There was no movement. And if you remember in that little film, they said, well, couldn't you intercept it? And I had to say, you cannot intercept something that is stationary, which you just can't do. Um, but there was something there. Um, when we got back and landed, and when Ivan and Jim Fraser Kirk came back, I had a word with Ivan, and he said, well, do you see something? Did you? I said, yes, he said, so did I. And it was just this little faint paint. You wouldn't call it a real positive blip. It's the sort of thing I've seen a Met balloon with a radar reflector on it before on AI-21, and I reckon it was probably that. Or something like that. Right. Um, in the end, we just turned around, went back home when we'd, we were getting a bit low and had several runs at it. But uh, each time I would say to David, there, it's out 45 starboard now at one mile, he'd be looking at me and see nothing. What is it? What is it? Oh, I don't know. There, there it was. So how many runs did you have as a target? Three or four. Definitely. So what altitude? Around 7,000 feet. And around 300 knots. 7,000 feet is quite low, really, isn't it? Oh, compared yeah. to a lot That's of the interceptions. Is, uh, yes, but of course, our intercept, our uh, fuel consumption was pretty high, then, which uh, governed the sort of length, of course. We only did that 50, 55 minutes. So you were airborne for what, about 55 minutes or five minutes? But you can check it in the log. <laughs> Great stuff. On the night in question, I can remember some chat immediately prior to. So in that one, he mentions he did at one point think it was this radar balloon thing. Yes. And um, the interesting thing about that was I did actually track down the, the diary, the squadron diary, number 23 squadron, which was their squadron. And there's an entry about the um, the case in there, and it basically said that there was all these aircraft were sent out looking for this mysterious object, um, <clears throat> and um, it was they couldn't work out what it was, and eventually it was concluded it was a balloon. That's all it says in the squadron diary. But obviously, um, there was something more than a balloon there, um, because what Freddie saw clearly wasn't a balloon. And it's, I mean, it's like with a lot of UFO incidents, like Rendlesham and some of the others, it's not impossible that there was a number of different things going on. You know, that there wasn't just one thing. There may well have been a balloon floating around as well that caused some confusion. 
but clearly what what was being seen earlier in the night wasn't a balloon and um uh, the, the 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 interesting thing about it is if if, uh, if there's any astronomers or people interested in astronomy um who um are listening to this show um the 13th or the 14th of august should spark um something off in your brain and that is because that is the height of the perseid meteor sh shower that that's the time when the perseids are the most active so there's a lot if you read about the case there's a lot of stories about people going outside and seeing lights streaking across the sky so it's quite possible they were perseid meteors and what happens with these cases again like rendlesham i think it's once people get it in their heads that there's something out there there's something flying around uh they're sort of broken out of whatever miasma they're in you know they might be reading the paper they might be you know wait, like like sat in the crew room waiting for the call someone tells them there's a ufo they go outside and maybe there's a balloon floating around or there's a meteor streaking overhead that gets all roped into the story and it's very easy then to sort of for skeptics and debunkers to sort of like myself to say what a waste of time you know it, that's obviously what it was but the more you look into it the more you look at the detail it's clearly something more than that and they obviously the american the air force american air force and the british air ministry obviously investigated it in great depth yeah. and i discovered um that the this is a really involved story the chap who was the head of 23 squadron at the time um is bloke called um uh, tony davis um he um was he'd he'd been a, a russian he'd been a, a british spy working for mi6 in budapest before he was he was he was captured by the russians exchanged sent back to the uk and they put him in charge of um 23 squadron um running the qra and i looked into his background and he'd um, flown in the second world war he'd flown intruder missions into germany and he'd actually seen a foo fighter during the Second World War, it's in one of his logbooks. Wow. <laughs> and the bizarre thing was, and this is still blows my brain when I find when I when I think about this. In 1972, he became the head of the Ministry of Defense's UFO desk, Anthony Davis. What year was that? <laughs> 1972, when when he'd retired from sort of military service, they brought him back obviously because he knew something about ufos and about the, he'd been they knew he'd been involved in this lake and heath case and they gave him the job as as head of the ufo desk at whitehall is this the same level years. as owen hartle and nick pope kind of level? no above that level so, so more di-55 type yeah 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 wow. and and when you look at the files, as I have done for that period when he was um, running the desk there were people who had obviously read about the case uh, in the Condon report that had been published by the Americans, who were writing in to the UFO desk at the time, saying, what do you know about it? And in one of the letters he writes back, he says, well, I know about it because I was flying one of the aircraft. <laughs> so That's amazing. He, he doesn't say any more. And it's so frustrating. <laughs> and it, unfortunately, he died in 1988. So I was never able to um, speak to him because it was before I started looking into this. But he obviously knew an awful lot about it and graham schofield who is the next person we um um yeah. we need to play he he knew tony davis and he he knew that tony davis had looked into the incident and investigated it and that there was something uh definitely sort of unexplained about it it wasn't a balloon basically 
Um, and we should say that um, Graham Schofield was the navigator of another Venom. And quite early in the evening, before um, Logan went out in his Venom, he'd been scrambled, I think, about half past nine when the yeah. first UFOs had been seen at Bentwaters. And he went up um, in this um, Venom from uh, Water Beach. And before they could get very far in the sky, I think the, the wing fuel tank fell off and crashed into a field near Cambridge. Again, all covered up. There was no sort of public story about this but this is what he said and they had to return to base so they couldn't actually get anywhere near this ufo that was being tracked at half past nine so quite he was really frustrated about this and he ended up back in the um in the guard room i think it was with all yeah. the other pilots and navigators gathered around a little radio set and they were listening to the radio and listening to what was going on in the sky with all these other aircraft being scrambled one after the other by um, my Niti said to go and have a look. So perhaps we ought to play what Graham yep. Schofield said. Let's get that one up. I will just say I've got a few people who have asked questions and I've I've noted them. So when we finish watching this and we'll talk about it, I will get to your questions uh, after that, guys. So let's get this playing. But I, I mean, I knew these guys very well, so they they were okay. You know, they knew their jobs yeah. and the. Um, the radar at that time was sufficiently good that if you got a blip, you knew what it was. You could yeah. identify and you could see it. You know, it was of a particular yeah. size, so you you would not really be um, assuming it was something, you know, some meteorological phenomenon or mm. something like that. And anything that could catch you might be a balloon or something yeah. like that sort, yeah. which is always the possibility. But um, but I believe these guys. Did get the scram, did get the intercept, did say what they said, and uh, so on and so forth. Mm. And I still, still stick, stick with that. Uh, so that. Uh... Okay. Well, the the Venom would it was a um, a twin seat uh, aircraft where the pilot and navigator sat side by side, and in the front of the seat, virtually the whole area was made up of a radome, which would have a radar uh, uh, unit. Probably about um, three and a three foot six wide, the um, the the the, the, the um, diameter of the uh, of of the actual screen, and this was uh, adjusted so that it could move in every every direction. So it could up, go up, go down, go left, go right, and that was connected to the radar equipment and and a joystick, which the navigator would work to position the uh, the radar in in place. Now, in addition to that, obviously, it had a um, a CRT display very similar to a television, which would give you a, um, a probe of light, which would go across. So the object of the exercise was to point your radar into the direction you thought the enemy aircraft would come. And then by a series of uh, calibrations, you could measure its distance, its track, yeah. uh, its positioning, things like that. It would appear on the, on the screen as a very fine line. And uh, you from the line and some of the rest of it, you could determining, you know, broadly what its characteristics are, whether it was big and fuzzy and whether it was very tiny. Right. Um, so we were not aware that we were other than just scrambled for either a trial or something like that, that we got off the ground. And immediately we would do a, a maximum rate uh, climb away from base, climbing turn and then onto your vector and go through. Um, and this, this climb would take you all of 15, 15 minutes, something like that. 
there we would be it was dark we were um no navigation lights so it would be very very quiet very still you know we would just be getting out to height and wondering what was going to going to happen Brilliant. now uh, i can't remember i don't think they did more than one pass each right i think they were then they were then called off um did they sound ex um, excited or oh yes yes or... yeah yeah they were they were speaking very tensely because well partly because you, you know, you're on a collision course you, suddenly, you can't see in front of you and what i hadn't figured was that the thing was stationary is it, it would be most unusual to have an aircraft well you couldn't have an aircraft that was stationary right and therefore there were two things that, that uh, were, were distinct uh one is the rate of, of uh, approach now the rate of approach normally is exceedingly fast if you are on collision courses opposite directions so you oh. can tell that reasonably clearly uh you would normally um expect therefore the aircraft in in front of you uh, to be moving in you know various directions and you would try to harmonize your speed with the oh. speed of the aircraft yeah you see so one of the things which uh is exceedingly difficult uh, particularly for the navigator and trying to define what the speed is so you can get the, uh, the the pilot to reduce speed sufficient to to come in line because you don't want to come in like a train you want yeah. to come in slowly and sit behind it identify it and then if necessary shoot it down at that point yeah. so the navigator's got a number of um uh methods of doing that one of which is to slap on your air brakes which is like stopping you dead dead in the air right but You've got to be very careful when you do that because if you ever shoot, you stop dead in front of the one you were trying to catch. <laughs> That's not very clever. But I didn't ever hear anything about air brakes. I didn't hear anything about controlling speeds or anything of that sort. Um, and frankly, when you're looking to be vectored onto um, a Russian bomber flight at 600 knots, the last thing you're expecting is something that's going to be stationary or <laughs> on the deck. So. I suspect there was a mental process involved right. here that uh, that hadn't quite clicked into place. So it would have been obvious to you, wasn't it, that this wasn't your ordinary yes. interception. Exactly. Something odd was exactly. going on. Yes. Yes. And I I seem to remember, and this is the bit where I may have made this up, but I seem to remember the pilot saying, the second pilot saying he is right behind us. Right, that's a crucial that's that's thing. what I what yeah. I have in mind because that's the thing that sent the shivers up our back. Because you know, one thing is one thing to be attacking somebody else, but if they're right behind you, attacking yeah. you, you really begin to, to well, wonder. In order to say that, because they didn't have any rear radar, radar that was looking behind, they must have just assumed that because they must have assumed, it yes. disappeared on the radar, that's exactly right. Behind. That's exactly right, yes. So, we, so someone over listening to that on the radio mm -hmm. on the ground would may have jumped to the conclusion that perhaps it circled round the back rather than the well, over shot exactly it. yeah yeah yes i mean it would be the natural reaction to very dense, who knows there was something there his the navigators told him it's just in front of you and he's gone beyond it and then he's saying right he's just behind me though <laughs> so that's that's the bit that really yeah. fixed our minds and then we started saying what could this be what is this likely to be uh is this a ufo is this a something and it was in our crew room that we would be discussing so that would be the first time that ufo yeah we never knew anywhere yeah, yeah anywhere else yeah and uh you know that went on until such time as the crews returned mm. which was quite soon after these incidents they didn't hang about they were vectored straight back to base right. they landed they came out came into the crew room 
tremendous amount of banter and jibes, you know, what's happened to you, seen any little green men and all, all the usual, you know, jokes. But the serious content was, was something that actually happened. And all of us were thoughtful about um, quite what it was all about. Mm. But to be quite frank, it, it didn't register to the extent that we all thought we were part of a, a major incident. Mm. We had not at that time been aware that the Americans had been involved. Uh, to us, it was something that happened on a particular night, and tomorrow was another day, and we were going to get on with our lives yeah. and do the various things. So that's really why our import is, is somewhat limited in terms of the, the overall scene. Okay. But I, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that really brings it home in what you said at the end there, Graham, about how the fact that they were all operating in their own little bubbles and because of it being everything was covered by the Official Secrets Act, no one was supposed to talk to anyone else. So the Americans knew their part of the story. Um, the, the, the radar people knew part of their, their, their part of the story. And then the pilots knew their bits of the story. And because over the years, um, some of them have died. Um, a lot of the records, the written records have been destroyed or dispersed it's been like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. And I, I spent literally, it must have been like 15 years working on this story from about 1995 to about uh, 2010, tracking people down. And they were literally in the last few years of their lives, some of them. But I do think it's an incredible story. And, and just, just to read, um, Gordon Thayer, who wrote this up for the Colorado um, University, the, 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 the Condon study, he was a radar expert, and he concluded what the line in the study says, the apparently rational, intelligent behavior of the UFO suggests a mechanical device of unknown origin as the most probable explanation for this sighting. Now, when people think of con the Condon study, they tend to think this is a complete debunking exercise, and you know we don't even need to think about it. But he does actually say that, and that is the one UK incident that's, that, that's in that. American study and clearly something must have gone on because I, I, I've got to say I have I, in all the work that I've done in the British archives they have literally gone through and removed and destroyed every single trace um, of this incident there is one single mention of it in a in a briefing from 1957 and this was simply because one of the defense ministers had asked the UFO desk at that time um, to spell out the incidents from 1956. And they make a mention of there was this incident at Lakenheath where an object was seen on radar at a high altitude. They sent an aircraft to uh, investigate, but nothing was seen by the aircraft, which I suppose is true. But it's yeah. the actual bare bones of what happened. Absolutely. Now, one thing I wanted to show people is just to get an idea. We keep hearing about these different bases, Lakenheath, Bentwaters and that. If I bring up a map, and we can kind of get an idea of the kind of area of of the UK. It's a bit blurry, but I'm sure we can we can do it. Yeah, that's pretty clear. So you can see here, if you can see my cursor, you've got Lake and Heath here, and then up to the right, we've got Neatus Head near the coast, and then down in the right corner, we've got Bentwater. So this is the kind of the East Anglia area, really, isn't it, of the UK? Yeah. So Bentwater's and Ipswich is where people will be familiar with the Rendlesham, Bentwater's Woodbridge down in the southwest corner of yeah. East Anglia. So Neaty said where Freddie Wimbledon was um, is right up on the coast, on the flattest part of the coast, which is why the radar station's there. Um, there's, a, there's an actual radar museum there now. If you, if, if you go yeah. there, it's actually 
you can actually go in the radar room as as it was in the 1950s. So you can sort of imagine yourself um, as Freddie Wimbledon would have seen it at the time. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. But it just gives a good impression as to piecing the, like you said, the puzzles, you know, and, and the bases and stuff. Ah, Mr. Graham Rendell's in the chat. Lake and Heath and Mildenhall are pretty close to each other. Yep. Bent Waters and Woodbridge's circuits overlap. IRRC, I'm not sure what that means. I'm sure they explain. <laughs> yeah, good to see you, Graham, anyway. Um, let's just say that. One thing I thought might be good to go, and I'm not going to spend much time on it, is just to look at the Blue Book files on it, just to show people that it was taken, you know, kind of seriously. So this is a, you know, these are, I'll, I'll scroll through. These are all documents, drawings of the radar, yep. showing the path of the object. And, and a lot of this is Dr. J. Allen Hynek as well. Yeah, he was, asked, that, you know. he was asked to give an opinion on it. I think even Fred Whipple was was one of the famous astronomers at the time, was asked to give an opinion. But this was all, what you're seeing there was all top secret. No one yeah. had access to it outside uh, the U.S. Air Force. And these are a lot of these are, or most of them are uh, Air Force documents as well. Yeah. So there you go. Talking about meteors and space anomalies and all sorts of things. But yeah, like you said, these were all classified files that have obviously since become unclassified. But yeah, it just adds weight to the story. There we have another image of the radar tracks and things. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense really to me, um, but it just adds to this weight of information and that so i thought that would just be worth checking out um i haven't linked that anywhere yet but what i'll do is along with the full interviews i'll link the blue book documents i'll give a shout out to sean rash witness citizen for sending me those when he knew that i was going to be covering this case um ah what about the artist impressions should we show that now as well do you yeah, want to talk about this quite good um yeah uh, hillary evans um who was very big in ufology in the 1980s and 90s he he ran a picture library in London called the Mary Evans Picture Library, which some people may have heard of. And he did a wonderful children's book on UFOs um, in the 1990s, which had these wonderful artist impressions. And there was a, a chapter on Lake and Heath Bentwaters where he'd got this, you can see there, it's sort of like a, almost like a palimpsest where he's got lots of bits from the story. So he's got the, um, he's got the radar people peering at the screen. He's got the blurry light in the sky. You, I think you can see a, a venom up there somewhere. Yeah, above the light. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's got the airman sort of pointing at the sky and the hangers. I just thought that really sums up the case really well. Yeah, absolutely. But the All key, right, well. the, the main the main thing about the case that makes it stand out, I think, is the action bit that Brady and Schofield were talking about. You know, the bit yeah. where that bit where the tension was rising and you can just imagine if you were in one of those venoms you've, there's no light you, you you've got your pilot who's sort of bombing along um in, in fact the pilot um david brady was the pilot when um brady was um david chambers was the pilot and he was called david hell for leather chambers that was his <laughs> nickname so he was like nice. bombing along and you can imagine brady sat next to him peering at this radar screen and 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 there's this thing about you know it's it's there in front of you and it's stationary and they're zooming past it and then yeah. they're getting the message from the ground it's behind you it's behind you and you can imagine that Schofield and the others down on the ground listening to this and hearing this rising tension that's the bit of the story I think that, that really makes it interesting so it's almost like 
they were involved in this really long chase with this thing, whatever it was. I mean, yeah. <laughs> was I mean, they're saying as well. They were saying that you know, at that time of night in those aircraft, your vision, your vision's limited to what twenty foot. So you're ba- you are basing you're, you're re- it's the radar, it's the the communications and things like that that you're relying on yep. to navigate around and, and intercept. It's not visual unless there's a, a light, which you know some of them have said. But it must be, you know, I'd be shitting myself. It, was, it must have been terrifying. I think they were putting a bit of bravado on there, to be honest. Um, and don't forget, this is Battle of Britain technology we're talking about. It's not much further advanced than what we were using during uh, the 1940s. This is way before we had digital technology, which is what, what they use nowadays. And and the interesting thing about it is the radars they were using then were better for picking up UFOs than what we've got now. Because the the, the radars that they use for civil, civil aviation now, they're computerized. And I mean, I've been around uh, Manchester Airport. I've been around some of the big airport um, terminals, and actually had people show me how to use the radar. And, and I've sort of said to them, "Do you ever see UFOs?" And they said, "Well, yeah, we see odd things all the time. But all we do is we just change the computer program so that they, it, we get rid of them." <laughs> it's like what? And it, it's it's like well, we're not interested in things that aren't aircraft. You know, so yeah, there's birds, there's insects, there's unusual meteorological things, but as long as they don't collide with aircraft, we don't want to see them. So we basically change, we 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 um, you know, we 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 get the computer, so it it doesn't see them. So unless yeah. something is the size of an aircraft and is behaving like an aircraft, it won't show up on radar. But that's why we get more of these stories from the 1950s, because that was before they were computerized. So they were actually seeing things which might have been UFOs and scrambling aircraft to look at them. And I think what really stood out for me when going through everything you sent me and reading about it was this big ground control radar that we see behind us right now. But also those Venom radars sounded pretty good as well. So yeah. if you've got corroborating data coming from both, you know, it, it's difficult well, to say that, that you know they're both messing up or exactly so here you've got at least five different radars all seeing the same thing so you've got the ground con- con- the ground controlled approach radar which is the american one at lake and heath they were seeing it from the ground all different frequencies don't forget these radars sure you've you've got the ground control interception or gci radar which is the type 80 or type 85 the one you can see behind you, again, yep. different frequency, seeing the same thing on radar at the same time. You then send up the um, the aircraft. They've got their airborne interception radar operating on a different frequency. If you've got three radars seeing the same thing at the same time, there's something there. There's no doubt yeah. about it. And you've got, I think Freddie mentioned, there's the height finder radar, which is a separate radar. Because he said at the end, it just zoomed off on the height finder. Yeah, and they couldn't incredible speed. get any readings from it. Yeah, that's incredible. And, and look, I think yeah, th- this was going on for hours. It started at sort of about half past nine, and it, they didn't fade from the radar screens until half past three in the morning. So there were wave that's after right. wave of aircraft going up. Amer- yeah. They sent some American aircraft up as well, some T 33s. I managed to track the pilot down from one of those, and he remembered it as well. Wow. Yeah. I think one thing that stood out for me was when they, the radars were tracking them coming in, you know. 30 miles 20 miles 10 miles and you know they're getting the speed of this thing so two three four thousand miles an hour in 1956 of course they're going to be very confused and 
the tensions are going to rise, you know, at, at that point within the Cold War, it's going to be what the hell's going on. So all these things adding up is just a, a fascinating, fascinating UFO case. So, and it's, it's just such a shame that it it didn't manage to make it into the media like some of the other stories, you know, like the Topcliffe one from 1952 and some of the others from that period, because like people spoke out and spoke to the media um, and then there were questions in Parliament it basically created a bit of controversy and so some of the papers survived whereas with this one because they were able to keep it secret for so long they've managed to hide whatever there was about it and destroy it effectively why i don't know well yeah i was going to say here's you know we know that the mod are sly and they have been many times in the past do you think it was a simple case of they just destroyed them for purposes of hiding the case and a cover-up or do you think they said they destroyed them and kept some somewhere i mean this is obviously pure speculation on your half but if anybody knows the way the mod and the archives and everything work it's you do you I, think they've I got think something they, secret i think they kept them for a while because i think they weren't able to explain it but i think what you've got to understand here is there's a massive turnover of staff at the mod and you get people yeah. who are sympathetic towards this subject like the unique popes of the world and you get people who are just utter skeptics and um i think what happened was and i suspect sometime in the 1970s maybe or even as late as the 1980s someone came across all this stuff and just said why are we keeping this and just all they've got to do is just say i think this is nonsense and yeah. it happened so long ago uh, we don't need to worry about it so Sign all they need to do is sign a bit of paper, destruction certificate, and it goes in the incinerator. And I think that's what's happened, unfortunately. That's crazy. Uh, let's get to some questions and, and, and statements. Uh, we'll start with this one here. Condine suggests an interest a question mark. Well, for me personally, Condine, you know, it mentioned a lot of cases that were unexplained, but it certainly didn't take it any further. In, in no. He, I mean, um, Haddo, Ron Haddo, who wrote the Condine report, he must know something about this case uh, because he was based in that area. He, he sort of trained in East Anglia on, on radar. Um, I, I'm sure he would know about it. And he mentions another incident in 1996 when something was seen on RAF Neatis said radar again in the Condine report. It's one of the few specific incidents that he, that he refers to. Um, so th there's obviously something about East Anglia that attracts these things, well, this was whatever they are. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up something we talked about before we came on live, which was the the beach, the lighthouse beach near Oh Orford Ness. Yeah, and we always hear about nuclear mm. things attracting UAP. And if if you could just tell us a bit about that again, because that had all sorts going on there from yeah. the early 1900s. Yeah, Orford Ness is like a big long strip of shingle beach, um, and it's just off the coast, not far from um, um, Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge. And right from the First World War, they used it to, to test all kinds of nasty stuff, um, mustard gas, I believe, in the First World War. And then in the Cold War, um, they were using, well, before, before the Second World War, before we had radar, they were using the, making the first radar tests there. Uh, and before we discovered radar, they were looking for a death ray, something that they could use to actually, you know, burn enemy pilots out of the sky, you know, like something from H.G. Wells. And it was while, <laughs> whilst they were mucking about with that, that they, they realized that if you send pulses of energy out, 
and it hits things and bounces back, you can actually see things before they reach the shore. So that's how they discovered radar effectively when they were looking for a death ray. Um, um, and then they, they, they built these huge concrete pagodas where they, where they were testing nuclear bombs, basically, underground. All of this going on on Orford Ness. And then the last thing there in the 1960s or 70s, the, the Americans spent billions on this, on this top secret base called Cobra Mist, um, which has got a very evocative name. And effectively, it was a top secret over the horizon radar station. Um, that was built to detect um, Soviet um, inter intercontinental ballistic missiles at great distance, almost like, you know, to take over from Filingdales. Yeah. And they spent billions on it. And it was it, the, the whole island was sort of off limits. No one could go there. But the, but the thing is, it never worked because there was some kind of weird sort of noise that they, they couldn't get rid of that was sort of interfering with the radar. And they didn't know whether it was the Russians jamming it or what. Um, so they shut this whole thing down about 1972, and it never it never went into operation. But that whole area and its proximity to Rendlesham Forest has led people like John Burroughs, the, the one of the key witnesses from the Rendlesham incident. He's absolutely convinced that it's, that what he saw um, at RAF Woodbridge um, on that famous night was some kind of experiment. This this some kind of experiment involving the British and the Americans and some kind of death ray that was being tested that he was exposed to, which is why, um, you know, he's had all this ill health. Um, yeah. He blames it on, on that, not on, not on sort of aliens or extraterrestrials, but on some kind of experiment that went wrong. Maybe wow. he's onto something there. I don't know. Maybe we'll never know. That's the thing. Mm. <laughs> um, Benji asks, we know that Rendlesham in 1980 was related to US nukes being held at Ben Waters. Were there U.S. nukes there as far back as '56? The answer is yes. Well, there certainly there we were go. nukes at um, Lake and Heath. I mean, Lake and Heath is some distance from Bentwaters, but they had um, some serious um, nuclear ordnance. In fact, uh, on a level of like what they'd used at Nagasaki uh, in the Second World War, stored at Lake and Heath. And this is why, when this um, B-52 crashed there, in just before the UFO incident, you know. It, it didn't come out until the 1980s, thank God. But, you know, we were very close to um, having most of the east of England leveled that uh, that night in July 1956. There we go. Uh, Andre asks, if this is 1956, some of these are going back earlier on when I saved them. Yeah. Why is the UK still silent on this subject? <laughs> well, I think the answer to that is simply they're embarrassed by it. And I think it sort of contradicts their standard line that these things don't exist that they're not interested in them and they've never studied them which is clearly a lie yeah and they don't pose any kind of threat to national security the same yeah. as what we hear yeah there we although, go. although like i said i've had to reluctantly sort of accept that i don't actually think they deliberately had a policy to destroy this stuff i just think if you if you work in the civil service particularly the mod there's such a huge turnover of people and there's different policies coming in and different sort of regimes. And and also there's the period in which things were stored on paper in filing cabinets. Remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. And, and people don't store things in filing cabinets anymore. So, the, so effectively, during the 1980s and 1990s, they literally went through all the past records at the Ministry of Defence when they were moving offices and things, and they basically must have come across mountains of stuff on these UFO incidents and just said, 
this happened 30 years ago. What do we need to keep it? If we do keep it, then people like us in the future might start asking awkward questions and asking to see what you've got on file. <laughs> what what have we got to lose by just destroying the lot? And then we can say, oh, well, sorry, we don't keep records after such and such a date. And that's the policy they've adopted. It is true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that kind of leads me into a question. There's something we spoke about very briefly. I think one of the last times you joined me is, I think I asked you the question as, if you believe they may still will have a kind of secret di55 equivalent office happening now and i think you said you you kind of think they might do well, can you expand yeah. on do, do you think you know where that might sit or anything like that yes well di55 who um, were basically the intelligence branch who were investigating ufos from about 1960s because when the air ministry became part of the mod um, mm. The old sort of structure that existed at the time of the Lake and Heath sighting, which was basically the old RAF stroke Air Ministry intelligence who looked into these things, they passed their responsibility on to DI-55, I think about yeah. 1967. And DI-55 um, retained that interest and they retained access to the files up to about 2000, which was when Ron Haddo completed that condine study and effectively that study drew a line under their supposed interest in the subject <laughs> now it's a bit like um you know that there was that flying saucer working party study in 1950 that basically said we don't need to worry about this forget about it yeah um and then winston churchill in 1952 after the top cliff sighting said you know what's going on and they had to then reinstate the the ufo desk and i think something like that will be in existence it just they won't use the word ufo they might not even use the word uap sorry they, uap yeah i bet they don't i think they'll, I, have, they'll have invented something else to describe it as and they'll probably be, because ron haddo was a contractor he was he was effectively a private defense contractor who they brought in paid him to do the study so that they could then say when they were asked in parliament we're not actually doing it ourselves which is not a lie because they were paying a private contractor to do it and that means that if some if you ask for information under freedom of information they can say no we haven't got any information which is true because it's yeah. public information that's subject to freedom of information so if if you employ a private contractor it's a bit like what happens with the nhs um, you can ask for information from the NHS, but anybody that the NHS employs privately is outside freedom of information. Of so I my I suspect whoever's taken over from DI-55 will be private defense contractors. They'll be based somewhere like Farnborough. Uh, there's a base in Bristol where I suspect this is going on um, or near Bristol. And I think that they will be um, keeping a very low profile. They'll be just interviewing um, people such as pilots, radar yeah. personnel, people who've seen things who are, who are military, basically. They're not interested in civilian sightings anymore. And that does kind of fit in with what's happening in the US a lot as well. It does. Um, here we go. How relevant, if any, do you see the 1956 incident with the 1980? So in the comparison of like, how do you weigh them up? Um, well, I think if we ha actually had some of the some of the materials, um, because back then when they did the radar trackings, they actually had like tracing paper on the radar screens, and they used to mark it with pencils so you could actually see where the object moved. 
And I know that Freddie kept a really detailed record. He had like a big, thick logbook where he, he, he would have entered every single thing that happened during the night, what time he scrambled, what altitude the aircraft was. And he had all that. And he said that when this group captain from Fighter Command came, they took it, they removed the logbook. So somebody had all that stuff. And I think if we had access to it, it would be far more evidential than the Lendlesham incident because you could add it all together. You could give it um, somebody with, you know, who could put it all together with what the pilot said, and it would be highly evidential. And obviously someone did that um, at the Air Ministry at the time and reach whatever conclusions they reached. So I, I, I've always thought it's far more uh, important and evidential than Rendlesham because the the radar aspect of it is is got the primacy, whereas the radar aspect for Rendlesham I always thought was pretty weak actually. Right, ah, fair enough. Um, uh, Graham asks, "What's the likelihood of secret files from the fifties and sixties actually surviving somewhere? Would duplicates be kept by other agencies such as DI fifty five? I guess you kind of covered this, but anything to add?" Well, the, some of the files from the 1950s have survived. I've got copied, copies of them. There are some quite interesting ones. Um, there was some um, there was some parliamentary questions that were asked, I think about 1957, about a similar incident where javelins were scrambled. And this did get into the news. And there was another sighting at Westfraw, RAF Westfraw in Scotland, in April 1957, where three different radar sets um, stations on a, an RAF bombing range switched on at a certain time on a morning. I think it was early in the spring morning, and all of them at the same time saw this enormous object over the over the Irish Sea, like a huge object as big as a battleship with lots of other objects circling around it. And um, the DI fifty five report, well, sorry, not DI fifty five, it's their predecessors. DIS report, was it? Yeah, it, it was Air Intelligence. I think they were called. Okay, D DDI Tech. Their report on that Westfraw incident has survived. It's in. It did survive at the National Archives. I can, I can send you copies of that. And it's interesting because it does actually say we can't explain it. And there was obviously some object in the sky that was seen on radar. Uh, it wasn't seen visually, but I think the, the phrase they use is, you know, there were four very large reflecting objects that weren't charged clouds and weren't sort of meteorological phenomena. And the reason that that file wasn't destroyed and it survived was because the, one of the radar operators talked to one of the Sunday tabloids about <laughs> the story. So it was front page headlines. And then there were questions asked in Parliament. And amazingly, at the JIC, uh, which is the Joint Intelligence Committee in London, which is like the absolute top intelligence um, where, where you've got MI5, MI6, GCHQ, it's there in the minute. So they couldn't destroy the evidence for that one. Wow. And it's actually in the files. It's just such a pity that no one involved in Lakenheath spoke to the media at the time, because if they had have done, they wouldn't have been able to destroy the material that they have destroyed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, oh, Mr. Strafe Wilson, good to see you, Strafe. Uh, does Dave have any comments on the current state of the UFO UAP topic? Are we gaining ground? Oh, well, that's difficult a difficult one. That's a difficult <laughs> one, yeah. I, 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 I don't know, are we? We seem to be getting somewhere when the Pentagon published their report, and although people thought it was a bit of a damp squib, I thought there were some um, quite interesting things in it. I think the idea that they had for doing like a real-time radar study 
of some of the areas where these things have been seen, for example, in the Southern Pacific Ocean around the coast of California, that rather than that, they were basically saying, we're not going to get anywhere looking at historical cases, sadly, like Lake and Heath, because they happened so long ago, however evidential we might think they are as ufologists, from a military point of view, people's stories without hard evidence like radar tapes and photographs and all the rest of it don't really amount to much. So what they seem to be suggesting, and they may well be doing this now because they've, they've asked for all this additional funding, is to actually you know, have real-time radars monitoring parts of the world where some of these um, strange UAPs have been seen, have aircraft ready to scramble, a bit like what we just heard at Lake and Heath, yeah. but when something happens actually be monitoring the situation in real time. So you've got two or three different radars, you've got aircraft, you've got visual observers, that's what you need. And that's what they should be looking for. And sadly, we have had this in instances like Lake and Heath Bentwaters in the past, but sadly, they haven't kept the evidence or they haven't shared it with the people they should have shared it with. So we can only hope that that's what they might do. But I've absolutely no doubt, I've, I've, I've no confidence, shall I say, that the British are doing anything remotely as comprehensive as this. I mean, I think they'll just be doing what they've always done and just said, well, the Americans have got more money and more resources than we have. Leave it to them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, David, we've just hit an hour and 10 minutes in. We mm. were going to bring up another case, but my suggestion will be that we'll do with that case what we did with this one and maybe dedicate, you know, half an hour yep. or at least an hour to it in the future. If you're Absolutely. okay with that, I think yep. these cases do warrant looking back on because they're not heard of or spoken about as much as, as we'd probably like, especially when they've got that much evidence and, and data. So yeah. Oh, we've got a question here. I didn't notice the signal has joined us. Uh, do you think details on big cases like Roswell could be lost due to poor record keeping? straight answer to that is definitely yes and i think sadly we've got to recognize that um we might think this subject is interesting but there's an awful lot of people particularly in the military and government who think it's a complete waste of time and public money and sadly those the, that mindset has has just as their influence and they've got a lot of influence they've destroyed a lot of this material i mean i should mention here i mean you know about this Vinny, but um, a colleague of mine, um, Matthew Ilsley, um, yeah. recently um, put in a Freedom of Information Act request um, to try and find out what's happened to the unredacted version of the Condine report, which, as you know, was only finished in 2000. And the one that was released, there's bits of it that were top secret. And I was told that this file, it would be preserved, it would be released at the National Archives. Well, Matthew um, sent an, a Freedom of Information request last year, I think it was. And after a long delay because of all the usual things, COVID, etc., someone came back to him and said, uh, well, we've looked for it, but um, we think it's been accidentally destroyed. This is the Condine report. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I mean, is so, that stupidity or just negligence? I mean... well. Again, I, I just, I just think they, they just, they don't value it. They don't value the subject. They don't, um, they don't think it's important. They, they just, they just think they just regard the likes of us as nuisance, as a nuisance, basically. So, anyway, um, this has got me on their back, and I've raised it with my MP, and put in a formal complaint to the Information Commissioner. So, I think they'll be seeing a bit of heat over this one. Yeah, absolutely. 
Dan says, great answer, David. Thank you. We shall meet soon when I visit Vinny. Absolutely, man. Yeah, if you're not aware, that's Dan, who I went to Columbia with. And yes, I gathered all yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, listen, David, let's leave it at that. We'll arrange to come back and talk about the, the top cliff case. Um, if you don't mind hanging about, we'll have a little chat after this, uh, after we end this. I just want to say again, thank you so much. I found all the research that you'd done fascinating and going through the interviews, it was just shockingly interesting and you know i'm glad that we got to do this and put this case back out there for people to see like i said to everybody who is watching now or in the future or listening if you go to the youtube video look in the description below you can download and listen to the full interviews from all of those guys that we played the clips from today it is fascinating it, it, you know and I, I just can't recommend it enough so yeah go ahead and check it out um yeah I think that's it, guys. I'm going to be back tomorrow night. I'm, I'm not having a day off this week. Back tomorrow night with Christina Gomez. So check in then. But for now, guys, we'll love you and leave you. Have a great rest of your day, and we'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.